We're going to be looking at chapter 7 of God's covenant. If you would, read along with me, beginning in paragraph 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he had been pleased to express by way of covenant. Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those who are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. The covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the, gra- or it is alone by the grace of this covenant that the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in the state of his innocency. Let's go ahead and jump right in there to the beginning of chapter 1. We're going to see three things. We've got three chapters and three headings. We're going to see in chapter 1 the necessity of the covenant. Then we're going to see in chapter 2 the grace of the covenant, or in paragraph 2 rather. And then finally in paragraph 3 we'll see the revelation of the covenant. We're going to look at those three headings as we look at each chapter individually. Going back to paragraph one, considering the necessity of the covenant, we're going to see no less than two things emphasized. The first is going to be divine distance. Did you see that there in the covenant? The distance between God and the creature is great. So we're going to see divine distance. But secondly, we're going to see divine reward. Specifically, you see there in the middle of the, of the paragraph, the reward of life. What is that talking about? So what we want to do is we want to consider each one of these emphases so that we might have a good foundation for the rest of the chapter. First of all, when it's talking about the distance between God and the creature, it is stating or it is asserting the creator-creature distinction. And notice that it's expressed in terms of distance. And that language of distance is not ultimately spatial, as in God is just really far away from us. We're here on earth and he's out there somewhere on the other side of Saturn. No, it is the language of essence. It is essential, which is to say that the godness of God and the manness of man are so fundamentally different that there is a gulf, a distance between God and the creature. He is infinite. We are finite. He is the creator and we are his creation. One person put it this way, the very act of creation brings the creature under obligation to the creator, but it cannot bring the creator into obligation to the creature. And that's what it's referring to here, that as the creature and of 
God as creator, every creature owes obedience to him as their creator. Now you remember all the way back in chapter four in the creation of man, what did man upon creation have written upon his heart? It was God's moral law. That very law that we see summarized in the Ten Commandments and summarized by Jesus in the two greatest commandments. And yet, even having that moral law written on his heart, he was given a positive law in the context of a covenant. Now, that's going to be an important thing to consider. When it says here that reasonable creatures do owe obedience to God as their creator, it is saying that they owe God a natural obedience. In other words, true, full, perpetual, permanent obedience to God, according to the law that has been written on man's heart, merits him nothing. Because that is what he, that's what God is owed. And so there is no reward for this kind of obedience. There's a couple places in the, in the Bible that we might see this illustrated. You see them in the footnotes in your confession. The first is going to be in Luke 17. Go ahead and go over there. Look at Luke 17. The Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at chapter 17. Beginning in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Well, what is our duty? Our duty is a natural duty. It is a lawful obedience to God as our creator. That is what Adam and all of his posterity owe God permanently, perfectly, and perpetually. Such that if we have done it in that way, if we have perfectly, permanently, and perpetually obeyed God according to his moral law written on our hearts, those laws later summarized in the Ten Commandments and later by Jesus, if we live our life perfectly, permanently, and perpetually in those ways, we are merely doing what we were created to do. As such, we are owed no reward. That is Jesus' point here in Luke 17. You see something similar, though, in the book of Job. And so if you go to the middle of your Bible there, book of Job, chapter 35, we're going to see something similar. Elihu is going to condemn Job, and this is what he says. If you, Job, are righteous... What do you give to him, speaking of God? Or what does he receive from your hand? In other words, what does Job have to give back to God that God did not previously have? According to his own righteousness. And of course, the answer is nothing. Job is called to be righteous because he is God's creation. Period. 
That's what's being said here. That the reward of life, that there is no actual reward of life. No reward is offered. No reward can be earned by doing those things for which you were created. That's the point. How then might God set before Adam a reward of life? Well, here we see two things. The possibility of reward, a reward that is not possible according to natural obedience, involves at least two things at the end of paragraph one. It involves, first of all, condescension, and it involves, secondly, covenant. First of all, notice that it is voluntary condescension. The infinite God condescending himself to a finite creature to offer to the creature something the creature is not owed and cannot earn. And he does so according to special divine revelation. Not only by special revelation, but in the context of a special special relationship. And that's what's meant here by covenant. That if man is going to deserve a reward for life, God condescends, comes down, creates a covenant relationship whereby he adds additional requirements, positive laws, think tree of life, tree of good and evil, additional commands, positive commands, that if they're obeyed according to the conditions of this particular covenant then the reward of life is held out to Adam. This is an important distinction. That distinction between natural obedience and covenant obedience. Man is not owed the reward of life for natural obedience. That's simply what he owes God the Father. But if in the context of this covenant, according to the terms set by the covenant maker, Adam obeys then the reward of life is held out to him that he and all who are in him might enter into God's rest forever. This is what the Apostle Paul means in Romans 5 when he talks about Adam being a type of the one who is to come. You should be able to hear in everything that I'm saying similarities, analogies to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because we can't think about Christ and of our relationship to him and of the blessings and the benefits that we enjoy from him and in him apart from covenant. So God condescended to create a covenant with Adam. Now I want to pause here for just a minute because I want to make sure that we're all on the same page on what exactly a covenant is. That a covenant in the Bible might be described as a solemn agreement with oaths or promises and which imply certain sanctions or legalities. And really, there's two things that are going to be true of every covenant. First of all, every covenant is relational. Every covenant is relational. But secondly, every covenant is legal. It's legally binding. This is what we see both in human covenants in the Bible, and it's what we see in the covenants that God makes with man. What do I mean when I say, first of all, that a covenant is relational? I mean that In a covenant, two parties make commitments to one another. Their commitments are often summed up, and you see this in the Bible time and again, in I will and you will statements. Or perhaps in some of those unconditional covenants made by God, I will and I will. That it is a unilateral covenant. God alone will fulfill the requirements of the covenant. 
And so different covenants in the Bible require different kinds of commitments. And different kinds of commitments in these covenants result in different kinds of covenants. That's why we see a diversity of covenants in the Bible. But secondly, it's not just relational, it's also legal. That a commitment in and of itself is not a covenant. I told you time and again when I was preaching through covenant theology that a promise is just a promise. A command is just a command. But what turns a promise or a command into a covenant are legally binding sanctions. And those sanctions are essentially threats that enforce or ensure the fulfillment of a covenant. If you do this, this is what you'll receive. But if you don't, then this is what you'll receive. These are the curses or the punishments or the penalties of the covenant. We also see legally these sanctions are imposed. We see the legal aspects of these covenants imposed symbolically in the Bible. You may remember, for instance, in Genesis 15, that Abraham had a vision in which God made him cut an assortment of animals and lay him out. And then God in theophonic form, that is a theophany, a vision of his glory, passes through the middle of those halves. Now, that would have been a common way to cut a covenant in the ancient Near East. We see the same thing later, you may recall, in, in Jeremiah 34, verses 18 to 20. That some of the inhabitants of the land made a covenant to free their Jewish slaves. And the way that they symbolized the commitments and the sanctions of that covenant was to pass between the parts of animals cut in two. It was an oath bound by a curse or a sanction. It's essentially saying, may it be to us if we don't keep our end of the bargain. That's what makes that covenant by God in Genesis 15 so remarkable. That when he passes through those cut animals in theophonic form, God in essence is saying, may it be to me, may death be to me if I don't keep my covenant. Well, we know that God can't die any more than God can lie. And so it wasn't so much for God's sake, but it was for Abraham's sake. That Abraham would know that God would be faithful. And so the precise form of a covenant-making ceremony is always going to vary, but it's not only relational, but it's legal. It includes sanctions that guarantees the fulfillment of covenant commitments. That if no oaths whatsoever are sworn, then the covenant ultimately has no force because there are no sanctions to enforce it. And so consider this, Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity... Be the death of the one who made it. Sanctions. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Which is to say that if there are no threats built into the covenant, then that covenant is invalid. A promise is just a promise. A command is just a command. But what makes a promise or a command a covenant is threats or sanctions. So how would I summarize all of that? I would summarize it this way. A covenant is a commitment that is solemnized and formalized with sanctions are put in place, when sanctions are put in place, guaranteeing the participation of the parties and the fulfillments of their commitments. It is formalized as a covenant when sanctions are put in place, and those sanctions guarantee the fulfillment of their commitments one way or another. So the question then becomes, when we're talking about a covenant here, what are we talking about? We're talking about an agreement being made between God and Adam 
where obedience is being demanded beyond the natural obedience that Adam owes to God by virtue of being a creature. And that obedience comes in the form of a positive law. You may not eat of that tree. Is there anything inherently moral with eating from trees? There's not. He can eat from any tree of the garden. Why can he not eat from that tree? Because in the context of the covenant, God, the covenant maker, said so. Such that now, if Adam gives God an obedience over, above, and beyond the natural obedience that he owes him, the reward that is being held out, that is the reward of life, will be earned by Adam. This is why theologians through the centuries have referred to that covenant in the garden as a covenant of works. That if Adam works and fulfills his end of the bargain, he gets a reward. And that reward is eternal life entering into God's rest forever. Not only for himself, but for all those who would follow him or come from him or be in him. So that's what we mean when we're talking about a covenant. God was pleased to express this reward and its conditions to Adam in the context of the covenant of works. But we know, beginning there in paragraph 2, that that didn't go so well. We don't get very far into the Bible before finding that Adam did not last long in his state of innocency. It says, Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall. And so here we have the context now of the covenant of grace. We just talked about this this last Lord's Day. That the context for the covenant of grace is the broken covenant of works. That is of sin and death spreading to all men because of the sin or transgression of one man. That when Adam jumped off sides, the whole team got penalized. You say, well, I don't like that deal. But you and I, we deal with representative leadership all the time, don't we? We vote in, for instance, leaders who go in our stead and what they do for good or for bad reflects on all of us, impacts all of us. Well, it's an imperfect analogy to say essentially the same is true in the Bible, that every covenant has a federal head. The covenant of works has Adam as its federal head. The covenant of Noah has, I'll give you a Three guesses and two of them don't count. Has who is a covenant head? Noah. Y'all are so smart. Abraham and his covenant has who? If you say Moses, I'm starting all over again. Abraham. So you understand what I'm saying? Every covenant has a federal head and that head represents, it's one person representing the whole. Adam represented all of humanity. So when Adam fell, we all fell. Well, here's what we're going to see in chapter 2. I've already given you the heading. It's the grace of the covenant. The context of the grace of the covenant is the law by his fall, or the curse of the law by his fall. Curse of the law meaning the death that was promised for Adam's disobedience. And in the context of this fall, it pleased the Lord, notice this, to make not a covenant of works, that's what we just saw in chapter 7, paragraph 1. It's what we saw alluded to back in chapter 6. No, here we have a first open mention of a different kind of theological covenant. A covenant of grace. And we're going to see no less than three things about this covenant of grace in the paragraph. We're going to see, first of all, God's offer. 
And then we're going to see God's requirement. And then finally, we're going to see God's promise. Consider each one of these. What exactly is it that is offered? It says here that in the covenant of grace, he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. Unlike the covenant of works with Adam, life and salvation by Christ is not earned. It is something that is, you see the phrase there, freely offered. It's not a reward of life. That's what we just saw in chapter one, or in paragraph one. It is the free offer of life to those who are dead in Adam. It is therefore a covenant of grace. And so you should be able to understand that just in the same way that sin necessitates grace for life, that is eternal life. So then the broken covenant of works necessitates a covenant of grace. If death came by the covenant of works in Adam, then we need a better covenant in Christ for life. And that is a covenant of grace. It is not earned, but it's freely offered. But notice also, with regards to God's offer, who is the offer made to? It says here, he freely offers unto sinners. Who are the sinners that they're talking about here? It is all of those who are from and in Adam. It's not just a certain number of sinners. It's not a subset of sinners. Here, the confession is talking about all sinners everywhere have this free offer given to them. This is an important distinction that's going to come up later on in the confession. We've talked about it at other times in our church. We see it uh, distinguished in the scriptures. That is the difference between a uh, general call of the gospel or an external call of the gospel and an effectual call of the gospel. When we say that there's a general call or an external call, what we mean is that the gospel is freely offered to all men everywhere in the way that we might beat bushes and invite everybody that we come in contact with to come into a feast. All are welcome. Come. You don't have to buy. It's already been purchased. If you have no money, come. Buy, eat, and drink. It's already paid for. Does that make sense? It's a general offer given to all men everywhere. And yet we know from our own personal experience and especially from the scriptures that not all those who receive that external or that general call will respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. And so according to God's decree, if it's predestinating grace, as we've already explored in earlier chapters, God then effectually calls some. That's going to become more clear in the third paragraph. Well, here it's not specifically talking when it says sinners to God's elect. It's specifically talking to all sinners everywhere. He freely offers it to all those who are in Adam. And what is he offering? That salvation by Jesus Christ. So here we have God's offer. The objects of his offer are his enemies. Consider how gracious he is. That while we were yet sinners... That while we were yet enemies, for while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, for while we were yet by nature children of wrath, while we were yet brought forth in iniquity or born in iniquity, brought, uh, born in sin and brought forth in iniquity, yet God offered in his great mercy freely salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
which is really just to say that the free offer of the gospel is the free offer of the covenant of grace. That's what the gospel is. They're one and the same. The covenant of grace conditions and defines the content of the gospel in Christ. So we shouldn't think about them as two separate things. They're one and the same thing. That the gospel is the proclamation, the declaration of a new and better covenant in Christ, whereby he offers freely to sinners everywhere salvation and life. Not to be earned as a covenant of works, but to be freely received by faith according to a covenant of grace. And that leads us to that second point. Not only do we see God's offer, but we also see God's requirement. What does God require in this covenant? Obedience for salvation? No. Look at what he says. Requiring of them faith in him. Him speaking of Jesus Christ. That God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That you would have faith in him. That is God's requirement. And so isn't it interesting then, there are some theological systems, some covenant theologies as it were, And you do realize that, don't you? That anybody who sits down and tries to put together the whole Bible to try to demonstrate the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the law and the gospel and Israel and the church, everybody has a covenant theology, whether they call it that or not. And so what is it that makes a good covenant theology? And what is it that makes a less than good covenant theology? a less helpful covenant theology. Well, one of those is ultimately going to be, how do we understand God's free offer of grace and when did he first make it? We'll get to that in just a minute. How do we understand God's free offer of grace? To whom has he made it? That is to all sinners everywhere in Adam. And when did he make it? Put that on the shelf because we're going to get to that at the beginning of paragraph three. But we're going to see one last thing here. In paragraph two, we've seen God's offer, we've seen God's requirement, and now we're going to see God's promise. What is the promise? What What does he promise to give or bestow on those who put their faith in Jesus Christ according to the covenant of grace? Look at what it says. And promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life. That phrase, all those that are ordained unto eternal life is qualifying that noun, sinners. In other words, all those who are ordained unto eternal life are sinners, though not all sinners are ordained unto eternal life. And how is it then that those who are ordained unto eternal life are able to believe? Notice that believing is not ultimately meritorious. It's not a work that we perform in order to earn or be rewarded eternal life. Look at how the confession summarizes scripture. They're ordained unto eternal life. Or those who are ordained unto eternal life are given his Holy Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? Makes them willing and able to believe. That's the doctrine of regeneration. When we get to the chapter on effectual calling, that's going to be especially helpful. 
it is to say that even from the very outset of our believing, it is all of grace. That the covenant of grace is from A to Z, from beginning to end, from alpha to omega, is omega, yeah, alpha to omega, grace. That God in his grace gives his Holy Spirit to his elect. His Holy Spirit then, the same spirit that created the world, now recreates dead sinners and gives them hearts that are alive and responsive to the gospel, such that now we respond to the gospel by faith as a gift. What does the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, not of works. Well, I just butchered it. We're going to have to go there. Because I got other things stuck in my head. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just follow the logic here. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. What is it talking about? Is the this referring to the salvation? For by grace you have been saved, and that saving is not your own doing. Well, yes, that's certainly true. But what else is it modifying? We are saved through faith. Salvation is what we receive, and faith is the basis upon which we receive it. It's the instrument, rather. And this This faith by which you are saved is not your doing. Well, then what is the faith by which we are saved? This faith that's summarized here in paragraph two, it is the gift of God. It is freely given. According to his great promises in the covenant of grace, God bestows his Holy Spirit upon his elect such that he freely gives the very faith that is instrumental in resting in Christ and receiving all of the blessings and the benefits of salvation in him. It is from beginning to end all of grace. That's why it's called a covenant of grace. Well, so we've seen now two things. We have seen the necessity of the covenant in paragraph one, and we have seen the grace of the covenant in paragraph two. Finally, we're going to see in Chapter in paragraph three, the revelation of the covenant. And we're going to see three things summarized in this paragraph. We're going to see, first of all, that the covenant of grace is progressively revealed. It's progressively revealed. Secondly, we're going to see that it's eternally founded. It's eternally founded. And thirdly, we'll see that it's particularly applied. Particularly applied. Consider that first summarizing statement that the covenant of grace is progressively revealed. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, and afterwards by farther steps. That is, step by step, little by little, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. Handful of things that are important here. First of all, it is revealed. In other words, the covenant of grace and all of God's promises that are made in Christ to those who would freely receive him by faith can only be known by special revelation. 
Now, when I say that phrase, special revelation, that should immediately jump you back to chapter one of the confession. It is to say that though we might be able to look at the trees and the clouds and the storms and the mountains and the oceans and the fish and many other things, and we might be able to behold and confess that there is such a person as God, that he has created all things, that he is powerful among many other things, his invisible attributes made known among them. We cannot know how it is that sinners can be saved from the bark of a tree. We cannot know how those who are dead in Adam can be made alive by a thunderstorm rolling in. In order for that to happen, what do we need? We need God to condescend. He needs to speak. And how does he speak to us? He's going to speak to us through his prophets And he speaks to us finally by his son, always in the context of covenant. And so this covenant of grace, that is the gospel, is first of all revealed. All of that's going to look back, as I said, to paragraph 1 of chapter 1, but it's also going to look forward to paragraph 8, paragraph 15, paragraph 20. We're all going to consider those things in the future weeks. It's going to be a sweet time. But it's not just revealed... It's also progressively revealed. That's what's implied by that phrase, farther steps. In fact, that phrase has both a broad and a narrow meaning. Narrowly, it's referring to the historical covenants. That is, step by step, beginning with Adam, then Noah, then Abraham, then Israel, then David, and then finally and fully in the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant. And so narrowly, it's focused in on those historical covenants. But broadly... It is to say that everything that happens under these covenants serve the mission and the ministry of Christ and ultimately the fulfillment of the covenant of grace in him, which is to say that we're not just considering the historical covenants in their context. We're considering how these historical covenants help to trace out the covenants of grace and works in redemptive history. How do we see in each historical covenant in their context, the reality of the broken covenant of works, which affects all men everywhere? And how do we see the the progressive revelation of the covenant of grace that runs alongside, underneath, and within each one of those historical covenants, such that those historical covenants are subservient to the covenant of grace insofar as they advance its revelation until its fulfillment in Christ? I've just spent seven weeks just trying to slowly unpack that for you in our series of how these historical covenants broadly serve the covenant of grace in the context of the covenant of works to bring about its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. One other thing that's important to note, though, about these farther steps, and it's an important way for us to understand really two things on how to do good covenant theology is two things. We need to understand the importance of mystery, specifically the mystery of Christ, and we need to understand the importance of typology, that is of how to interpret patterns in the scriptures that find greater fulfillments beyond themselves. Consider the first, if you're taking notes, just redemptive history and the mystery of Christ. The New Testament builds on the Old Testament vision of salvation for people from all nations through this serpent-crushing seed of the woman who is a nation's blessing seed of Abraham who will reign forever on the throne of David. 
All of this would ultimately be accomplished through the death and the resurrection of Israel's promised Messiah. And so the Apostle Paul in particular, you may remember in Ephesians chapter 3, emphasizes that this is ultimately the full and the final plan of God for the entire world. The plan that was hidden as a mystery for all ages and is now fully revealed in Christ and his church in the context of the covenant. He says specifically in Ephesians 3, 4, and again in Colossians 4, 3, it's called the mystery of Christ. What does Paul mean by mystery? Because the plan is a mystery, what it means is that it wasn't fully known prior to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. It's to say that it was partially known. And so to speak of something as a mystery is not to say that it wasn't known at all. You remember the illustration I gave this last Lord's Day, I borrowed it from another brother, of scaffolding or a tarp thrown over the top of something. That if you put scaffolding over a building or scaffolding over a ship, and, you're, and that ship is hidden yet being built and formed and shaped within that scaffolding, when you look at the scaffolding, you're saying, that looks like a ship. That looks like a building. But the scaffolding itself is not the thing. And eventually, when that thing comes to completion, the scaffolding falls away because it's not needed anymore. The blueprints and the patterns are trashed. They're not needed because the thing to which that they were subservient to has been completed and fulfilled. Well, the same thing is true here. When we consider the mystery of Christ, it is not to say that we don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. It's to say we see Jesus, we see Christ everywhere, the Messiah everywhere, but we see him in types and shadows as a mystery. We don't see him fully According to what he revealed in his incarnation. No, we see him partially. Not something intentionally hidden so that it can't be found or understood. No, it's something partially revealed. Something made known incompletely. So you remember Jesus when he was teaching through parables. What did he say to his disciples? Why is it that I'm teaching you in parables? He says, so that you may understand and others may not. Because what was he imparting to them? He says, I'm teaching you the mystery of the kingdom. He wasn't trying to speak in terms that nobody could understand. He was speaking in terms that only those who by the power of the spirit had eyes of faith could see and know and understand. Take ears, Jesus, or take care, Jesus said. Watch your ears that you may hear. Okay. So the mystery of Christ is an important category in the New Testament to explain the relationship of the Old and the New Testament. It is, as one person put it, the legend to the map of redemptive history. And so any covenant theology that ultimately doesn't take the mystery of Christ into account isn't following a biblical pattern of explaining God's plan for the fullness of time. But secondly, not just mystery, we need to understand typology. T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. What is a type? A type or typology in the Bible, it's a person, place, or event serving as a recurring theme or figure that prefigures a future person, a future event, a future place, what we might call an antitype. In the antitype, which is the fulfillment of a type, a future person or event more fully expresses the truth of what came before. And so we see that here, don't we? That 
The covenant was revealed in the gospel afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed. The fullness of it was completed. The antitype in Christ and his covenant has arrived. And so we need to pay close attention to this because typology is one of the most important pieces of biblical interpretation in general. Alongside the mystery of Christ and in covenant theology in particular. And so when we talk about a type, a typological relationship is as we're talking about it as seen and divinely ordained analogies that have divinely ordained escalation. They escalate. This means that New Testament contains the fulfillment of previous patterns in a greater and a final way. Conversely, the Old Testament establishes patterns that find their fulfillment in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have types. In the New Testament, we have antitypes. In the Old Testament, we have shadows. In the New Testament, we have the substance. And so it's important for us to understand then these types. A handful of things to think about just regarding types and antitypes. Well, I'm going to skip over that. These types essentially function on two levels. Two levels. We might call it a two-level typology. First of all, they function in an immediate context. So you think about, for instance, the promises that were given to Abraham concerning a physical nation that would come from them to whom God would give the land. All of those were very real promises that would be fulfilled by God according to his covenant to Abraham that he would indeed have a family that's numerous and he would give them a physical land called Canaan. And all of those ultimately were fulfillments of God's promise, but they weren't the ultimate fulfillment. They were one level of fulfillment that anticipated a second level, a greater fulfillment. And so God's people and God's, or God's physical, or Abraham's physical people and God's physical land enjoying peace and rest according to God's great grace anticipated a greater covenant in which Abraham's spiritual offspring, those who share his faith, would be inheritors not just merely of a physical land, but of the whole world, Romans 4. And they would enjoy peace and rest, not conditionally, but forever because of Christ, their head. And so on the one hand, types all have an immediate fulfillment, an immediate context in which they're understood. But secondly, they have a final and a messianic context. That is their fulfillment. So think about this. The writer to the Hebrews states that the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. And yet that blood did take away sin, didn't it? It took away sin sufficiently enough to cover or to remove Israel's sins so that they might remain in the land for another year. It was able to wash the nation or individuals outwardly, but it was not able to cleanse the conscience. And so animal blood was a way to satisfy the demands of the Mosaic covenant in order to remain in Canaan, but it couldn't satisfy the demands of the covenant of works in order to escape condemnation. And so the beauty of typology then is that at the same time, this entire system is designed to teach the Israelites about their own sin and of the substitutionary atonement and the remission of sins through blood that would come later in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
All of this is pivotal to understanding typology, that it functions on two levels. And so when a serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, the provision of the wilderness uh, the provision of wilderness manna, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices, all of those had an initial and provisional meaning in their own context. And yet each one of them and many, many more all point to a secondary reference and a meaning in the messianic kingdom. And so when we come back to the covenant theology that is summarized in the confession, and we, we, we read words like farther steps, fully discovered, we're thinking about this typology in the scriptures of God being faithful to historical covenants by fulfilling those promises in immediate contexts. And yet those fulfillments being merely types that anticipated greater fulfillments later on in the Messiah. Finally, when we consider types, they always terminate in their antitypes. As I said, when the antitype comes, when the substance is here, when the yes and amen arrives, the promises are no longer needed. The plans, the, the patterns are no longer needed. The shadows pass away when the substance arrives. That's why we read in Hebrews 7 that it's become obsolete, or Hebrews 8 rather. The writer of the Hebrews said the same thing. He said, the law has been a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form, the icon of these realities. They pointed to something greater. And so the type always pales in comparison to the antitype because its fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ, his kingdom and his covenant. Why did I just take all this time to explain all this? Because if you don't understand what I just said, you won't understand the difference between a distinctly Baptist expression of covenant theology and of that of our Presbyterian friends. You won't understand how our Presbyterian brothers and sisters arrive at their doctrine of the church and of their conviction toward paedobaptism and of how Baptists, on the other hand, articulate almost the same covenant theology and yet organize it in a way that leads them to a full conviction, not of paedobaptism, but of credobaptism. In other words, where our pedobaptist friends see continuity between the old covenant and the new, Baptists will see discontinuity. Whereas our pedobaptist friends will see the substance of the covenant of grace, not only in the new covenant, but also in the old covenant, such that the covenant of grace is really just being administered in two different ways. A Baptist covenant theology is going to say, no, the substance of the covenant of grace is not found in the old covenant. It's one of the reasons why, for instance, the confession in chapter seven goes all the way back to Adam when the Westminster confession only goes as far back as Moses or perhaps even by implication, Abraham, that the Baptists are trying to be really careful with taking redemptive history and its whole scope into mind such that we would understand each one of these steps revealing in a promissory form further and further the fulfillment of God's covenant of grace, the full and final revelation of it in the new covenant by the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to say this, if we have a typological reading of the Bible, what we're saying is that the new covenant is not merely one, admin, one of two administrations of the covenant of grace. That's what our Presbyterian friends would say. 
What we're arguing, based on everything I've just explained, is that the substance of the covenant of grace is not found in the old covenant, but the old covenant anticipates, promises the covenant of grace, which is fulfilled in the new covenant. In other words, the new covenant alone is the historical revelation of the covenant of grace. Such that now the parties and the members of the old covenant are not one and the same as the parties and the members under the new covenant. Our Presbyterian friends would say that the outward signs of the covenant were administered to children under the old covenant. The substance of the covenant of grace is present in the old covenant. So now it must also be the case that the outward signs of the covenant are administered to children in the new covenant because the new covenant is just a second administration of that one covenant of grace. The Baptists are going to say, no, where you're seeing continuity and flattening redemptive history, we see more progression. We see not the substance of the covenant of grace, but we see it in promissory form in the Old Testament, such that it is ratified truly and newly by the blood of Christ in history in the new covenant, such that the parties of the covenant are different. We can get into this in our discussion here in just a minute, but the parties are different. Now, the external signs of the covenant, baptism in particular, is applied not to all those who are covenant members under the old covenant, but only to those who are found in Christ by faith, because there are no others that are members of God's new covenant of grace. It's only those who enjoy the blessings and the benefits of the covenant of grace in Christ. So that's who the signs get applied to. That's why I spent all that time talking. Two more things, and then we'll, then we'll have a little bit of discussion. So we see it's progressively revealed, and that's important for a distinctively Baptist covenant theology. But secondly, we see it's eternally founded. That the founding of this covenant takes place in the new covenant by Christ, but it is according to the covenant of redemption between the Son and the Father. You see that there? This is just going to make a direct line to chapter 8, verse 1. And if you were to peek over to that, you would see this language fleshed out in greater detail. That covenant of redemption was a covenant of works between the Father and the Son, in which the Son willingly obeyed the Father. And in His perfect obedience, both actively in His perfect obedience to the law and passively in His suffering, merited salvation for God's elect. And so the covenant of grace is just that. It is a covenant between God and the elect in which Christ, quote, freely offers and provides all the blessings and the benefits of salvation that he earned in the covenant of redemption. In other words, Christ merited our salvation by his obedience in the covenant of redemption. We freely receive that which he freely offers, that merited salvation by faith, the faith that he gives by his spirit in the covenant of grace. And this Salvation, as we see at the end of the third paragraph, is particularly applied. It says here that it is applied specifically to the elect, to all the posterity of fallen Adam, important qualifier, that were ever saved. And so in the covenant of grace, God's elect then obtain life and blessed immortality. Not just those who come to believe in Christ in the New Testament, but all of those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, going all the way back to Adam as the gospel, 
that is the covenant of grace, is revealed in promissory form through types and shadows across the Old Testament. And so we have, for instance, Abraham. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Indeed, he saw it and he was glad. It wasn't merely that Abraham was believing upon some kind of ambiguous promise. He understood that this is a promise to be fulfilled in a Messiah. He saw it and he rejoiced in it. Hebrews chapter 11, you remember Moses said that it was so much better for him to to, uh, endure suffering for the sake of Christ. It says that explicitly than have all the riches of Egypt. Moses suffered for Christ. That's just the writer of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling us what Moses believed. By the way, you could see that all the way through Hebrews 11. Okay? If ever there was an argument against the kind of dispensationalism that I grew up in, Romans 11 is it. You may remember Isaiah. Who does he see in the throne room in his vision? Well, Jesus, according to the Apostle John, or the Apostle John rather, says that he didn't just see some ambiguous theophonic form. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that he saw the exalted Son of God. He saw Christ. Abraham saw him and rejoiced. Moses suffered for Christ. Isaiah saw Christ such that they believed. And that revelation, as it was further revealed until in time, space, and history, Christ, according to the covenant of redemption, became incarnate and shed the blood necessary to earn all that was required or all that he would give to all of his elect through the ages, that is, eternal life. Indeed, it could be no other way. That's what that last line is saying in paragraph three. That the promises of the covenant of grace revealed in the gospel, it's the only effectual means by which sinners can be saved. That not only has the covenant of works with Adam been abrogated, in other words, you can't go back and do what Adam did better and earn the reward of life that Adam failed to receive. That covenant has been abrogated. So you can't go back. You're dead in him. And because you're dead in him, it says here that we are utterly incapable. We talked about that from chapter six last week. Total depravity and total inability with regards to meriting salvation from God by our own obedience. We cannot earn eternal life. In other words, eternal life can only come by faith in Christ according to a promised and now fulfilled covenant of grace. That one covenant that is strung through all of redemptive history, tying together Old and New Testaments in a single unit, in types and shadows, and in later fulfillments, that find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a distinctly Baptist covenant theology according to the confession.